0: Seated. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, I'm going to John chapter 14 to the end of the chapter as we conclude what is only been the first chapter here of, uh, sorry, the second chapter here of uh, what, 5 in the upper room? 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's been such a delight to be in this passage with you over these several weeks, and I. Greatly look forward with you to the passage to come. I'd like to just take the small passage here at the end because I think it's very timely to have a sermon on peace in the storm. I think it's probably always timely, but it's especially timely, I think, now. Here now from John chapter 14, I'd like to read to you, picking up now, uh, verse 27. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, You may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, how many hearts here uh, there are who know anguish, trouble, and turmoil, Fightings without and fears within, as Paul, as, uh, as uh, Jeff reminded us earlier, the song says, we are once again in need of the supernatural peace that you provide, that peace that the world can neither give nor take away, That peace that is the fruit of your spirit. And so it is, we pray, that in taking this word of our Lord to heart, we pray that we would have peace in this storm. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's strange that we have a law against disturbing the peace because we have so little peace to disturb. Washington, of course, for its part, has a large assortment of peace monuments. They build one after every war. Peace is in short supply, not only among nations, but indeed in every heart. I don't have to tell you. I was going to have a longer introduction, and yet you know where I'm coming from, everyone wants peace, but where can we find it? How should we pursue it? How does it become ours? These are the critical questions. You know the problem, and Jesus provides an answer to this question in our passage. I'd like to cover it with you under three points. Uh, Jesus gives not as the world gives, first. Second, Jesus gives us peace with God, And third, my longest point, Jesus brings us peace in tribulation. Peace in tribulation. And I, I would like to begin with the negative, because you notice that Jesus does say in our passage, I'm going to give you peace not as the world gives. My first point to you this morning, not as the world gives. People mean a great variety of things when they speak about peace. P.G. Woodhouse once quipped that the peace that passeth all understanding can only be experienced by the man who has given up golf. That actually happens to be a very common view of peace. That is the kind of peace that many people seek today. That is to say, peace for many is just the absence of vexation or frustration the kind of thing you get in a golf course, right? Uh, not, not having a care in the world, as we say, is what people are seeking. But this is peace without virtue and without meaning. This is not the kind of peace that we are talking about, the undisturbed absence of vexation or frustration, not having a care in the world. That is not what Jesus is giving. That is the kind that the world can give, but that the world, of course, cannot sustain. In our world, wanting to be free from concern over anyone or anything is utterly selfish, and unthinking indifference certainly not a virtue. In fact, the most evil men in the world enjoy that peace. The 19th century Scottish missionary John Duncan once wrote about watching a sinful, selfish man die. And he was dying without a care for what he had done or concern for what he he was about to face. And he wrote, it was an awful calmness. The man had peace of a sort, the kind that the world can give. In view of eternity, the kind of peace that ignores God and his judgment day is as worthless as the piece of paper that Chamberlain proudly waved when he got off the plane after his conference with Hitler over Czechoslovakia. He had secured, he said, peace, peace in our time. A peace that barely lasted a few months and heralded the second greatest bloodbath, bloodbath the world has ever seen. People think that Chamberlain is one of the great fools of history today, proclaiming peace, peace, when there was no Peace. It's a a foolish approach. Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest-ranking military officer in the infamous Hanoi Prisoner of War camp. During the height of the Vietnam War, uh, Hanoi Hilton, as it was derisively called, one historian interviewed him and uh, wrote how he was tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from from 1965 to 1973 and how he lived out the war without any prisoners' rights, with no set release date, and with no certainty as to whether he would even survive. Many did not survive that camp. One interviewer asked him, who didn't make it out of the camp alive? Oh, that's easy, Stockdale said. The optimists. The optimists, the interviewer said. I don't understand. The optimists, Stockdale confirmed. They were the ones who said, we are going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Those men had put their faith in something, which gave them a kind of peace for a time. A peace that could not be sustained, and for that reason, with no solid reason to have peace, it was soon gone, and their hearts failed them as well. This is the kind of peace that the world can give, but that which it gives, it also easily takes away. Many people today are a kind of prisoner, prisoners without peace. Not finding peace, they seek at least a kind of relief through prescription drugs, illegal drugs, making illegal drugs legal here in Virginia, right? Uh, That's a kind of peace that the world is seeking because it can't find any other kind of peace. Can we at least have the kind of peace that is relief? A very temporary and ultimately very unhappy relief, a relief that takes away for the moment any care of anything in the world a kind of peace that will put people to sleep spiritually and make them care about nothing, even God. That's a horrible thing. It's a curse. Where are you seeking your peace? Are you putting your hope in Christmas, in Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas? My dear friend, I hope that your peace will fail you today, if that is the case. I hope that you can see that it is folly. And I hope, more to the point, that you will replace it with this peace, Christ's peace that he describes here, a real peace, with a certain hope, that begins with my second point to you today, Jesus brings us peace with God. Jesus brings us peace with God. I'm going to go on and speak about another kind of peace, but it begins here and must begin here. Jesus brings us peace with God. Christ's peace is a much deeper and richer thing than the world knows. It is certainly not the absence of war, and it is not won by the sword. It is the deep serenity that comes from the knowledge of God's love, from Christ's victory, for the, from, from the believer's ultimate confidence of his inheritance in heaven. We who were God's enemies, as Paul writes elsewhere, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and receiving Christ's peace. My peace I give you. Christ's peace. That peace of Christ comes from receiving Christ himself. That's the point. Receiving the one who himself has died for our sins and reconciled us to God, that is our boast. That is our joy. And if you don't have it, that is what you need. Do you have peace with God? Oh, you say, no, I'm too sinful and unworthy. The Lord certainly will not reply, oh, you're being too hard on yourself, you're not as unworthy as all that. No, no, it says time and again it was sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, that God justifies the ungodly, that we have actually no righteousness, none of our own, and God has given us righteousness in his Son, that having been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it. And we who have it should enjoy it and enjoy having it. It is a permanent possession. Jesus reminds us later in the upper room that his own father has received us and loved us with all the love with which he has ever loved his own son. Isn't that a great thing? And do you want feel-good religion? Because I do. And the hill of comfort... As Spurgeon wrote, this is a great quote, the hill of comfort is the hill of Calvary. The house of consolation is builded with the wood of the cross, he wrote. If you want to have any other kind of peace, any firm foundation for any other kind of peace in the world, it must start with peace with the eternal God. You get it? Luther wrote, when the devil throws up our sins to us and declares that we deserve death and hell... You ought to speak like this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. For no sin is greater than the blood of this Lamb, and we are clothed in him. That's a pretty great statement. And this peace, the peace of God, comes from Christ's own peace. Many people sit there where you sit in the pews for years, even enter the ministry, without knowing the joy and the comfort of this peace. So allow me to press it to you once more with one more illustration if you will indulge me. Late in 1735, there was a ship making its way across the Atlantic from England to Savannah, Georgia, and on board was a young Anglican minister named John Wesley. He had been invited to serve as a minister to the British colonists there in Savannah and to pursue missionary work among the Georgia Indians, as they were called. Well, on the way across the Atlantic, The storm hit the ship, and the ship found itself in grave danger. John Wesley, um, who was also the chaplain of the vessel, uh, he feared greatly for his own life. And going down below, he came in one of the berths to a gathering of some Moravians who were also on their way to preach Christ to the American Indians as he was. And, and all through that storm, there they were singing joyfully and peacefully. And they didn't seem afraid in the least. How could they have this peace in the storm? Afterward, Wesley asked the Moravian leader about the peace and the joy of those believers. And the man responded with the question, Did he Did did Wesley have faith in Christ? He gave a faint reply, and he later reflected. I I fear those were vain words. He later wrote in his diary, "I, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who, oh, who will convert me? And his experience in Georgia was a failure, both personally and in ministry, and he bitterly returned to England. But it had awakened him. And a little while later, Wesley went, very unwillingly, he said, to a meeting at the Aldersgate Aldersgate Street where someone was reading Luther's preface preface to the Book of Romans. And there, as it was being opened up, he said, "I, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. That he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that peace made Wesley a new man. And with what tremendous energy and confidence in a world of turmoil, he went forth and he did change the world. Christ's peace is the place where all true peace may be found. It is the solid foundation upon which all peace in this world can be built. And so he calls it here Christ's peace, his peace, my peace, I give to you. It is a word, you notice here, to his disciples and his disciples alone. But that uh, brings us more to the point, to my third bullet point before you today, my third point of my sermon, my longest point, Jesus brings us peace in tribulation. Peace in tribulation. We come now really more to the burden of this passage. So far, it's all context, really. The Lord's burden on this night is that these disciples, whom he's about to leave, These disciples, whom he's about to lead out that night into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be met by a kiss from Judas and a mob of armed guards. They will come and arrest him, and the next day crucify him. And therefore, he specifically is giving really this whole upper room discourse, but these words of comfort in particular to give his disciples a peace in the midst of that storm of tribulation that will scatter them that night. That's good because this is very much like the life that we face in so many ways. Jesus has not given us a peace without tribulation, the kind of peace the world can give, Jesus gives us a peace in tribulation, and that's what we want to know something about today. Jesus says it very explicitly as he comes back to this uh, thought in chapter 16. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There is a great storm out there. There is a greater victory in Jesus. But how does it work? Being a Christian clearly does not preserve us from the storms and trials of the world. But we do find that the great storms of the world are like the storms, like the great hurricanes that are on the top of the ocean. They greatly disturb the surface, it's true, but there is this f- almost fathomless depth beneath of a calm that cannot be shaken. And this is the kind of paradox, if you like, that Jesus explains here in the upper room. In the world, tribulation. His heart is troubled and he will say so again. God's peace is not going to mean the absence of anxiety or vexation or fear. But it will mean the presence of someone greater than all that, you see. The presence of someone. The presence of someone who says, I go to prepare a place for you that where you may be there I will be also. I will never leave you or forsake you. And all these precious promises of the upper room are given so that the presence of Christ will overcome all storms and uh, fightings without and fears within. This someone who is with us is going to be with us in the storm, like the disciples in the boat, you remember. And every promise in Jesus is yes and amen the bible says if god is for us who can be against us we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are the called according to his purpose that's where this peace comes from i give them eternal life jesus said they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand that is the one who is with us in the storm god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to stand up under it. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Jesus is reminding the disciples of all these great and precious promises, which in him are yes and amen. Now, in the passage, Jesus has already given us many reasons for peace, as we've seen the last several weeks, and I won't go over the, the, the whole distance here. I trust that you have been considering these things and meditating upon them. He goes to prepare a place for us. The Holy Spirit is coming in power. He promises to answer prayer. The Lord will continue his work in and through his disciples. That This is the kind of peace that he's going to give. He's not going to calm the storm, but he's going to be with his disciples through it. We will have trouble and tribulation. Jesus himself had trouble and tribulation. Jesus was troubled at the tomb of Lazarus where he wept outside the tomb, and he groaned, it says, within himself. He was troubled again as he recognized that the appointed hour for the cross was drawing near. John 12, 27 uh, Troubled in chapter 11. Troubled in chapter 12. He says he's troubled the third time when he testified that Judas would betray him. Uh, What I'm saying is, even Jesus was troubled. And the peace that he gives, not like the world gives, is not a piece piece of detachment of Zen Buddhism, of indifference, of... Aloofness from life's problems, the absence of desire, none of those things. In fact, Jesus commended to us true human emotion. But through this prayer, and through knowing the Father's will, he wrestles through to a place of inner peace as he faced horrific suffering. There's the anxiety of the garden. There's his burdened heart for his disciples. There is the death of his dear friends. True peace is not found by ignoring or not caring about what happens to people around you. It's not found from psychological separation from the tumult, even the tragedy of human life. In so many ways, Christ makes the storm worse for us because we care so much, you see. Christ's peace is very world-affirming, human life-affirming, affirming struggle, affirming hardship and mourning. Christ himself has entered into our sufferings and Christ affirms your tears in the midst of your trials. His heart, his holy heart broke more than our cold and dull hearts ever break. Being so dulled by sin as they are. But Christ's peace, as he gives it, is a peace that fills the heart in defiance of all the world's expectations, no matter the existence of reasonable fears and crushing disappointments. So he doesn't say, if we follow him, we'll never have anything disturb us, we'll have the abundant life, hap, hap, happy all the time. I've mentioned before, I'll say again, there's a feeling in evangelical piety that if you're not happy all the time, then you're not trusting in the Lord, brother, sister. We we just don't find that in the emotional life of Jesus or of his followers. The Bible even calls this a veil of tears. And it it calls it that in the midst of psalms, so many psalms of lament. There's something so freeing to be able to sing a psalm of sadness, an inspired psalm of agony. Is there not? Because this is the world-affirming, tear-affirming, anguish-affirming, troubled Savior whom we are following. And the kind of peace that he gives is not anything less than facing facts realistically. But he does enable you to triumph over those facts in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and I will be with you. And in these sufferings, you will be also more than conquerors. So, so let me uh, illustrate with uh, a story from Romanian minister Joseph Zone, who suffered greatly under the Ceausescu regime. If you kids don't know Ceausescu, I, I understand he's come to nothing, but for a while he was one of the most brutal dictators of the 20th century. Hard to know who the top five might be. There were so many high contenders, it's true. Ceausescu was a brutal dictator of Romania in the communist period. And one day the communists came to Czone's house and confiscated nearly all his books. And that's enough to make any minister weep, okay? Um, yeah. Some of you that don't laugh just don't know the kind of connection that we have. My wife says, do you need all those books downstairs? I mean, I said, yes. <laughs> and the soldiers wanted proof that they were getting these books from him. So when they, when they arrested him, they made, they made him sit first at his table, and write in each book that they found in his house his name while they took pictures of him doing so. And so was mourning until he took down the next book on the shelf whose title was Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory with a subtitle. Is that your experience now? And as he read the title, that question came home to Joseph. He asked himself the question, and and he remembered who was with him, why he was there, what his purpose was. And in that moment, he was flooded with great joy in the Holy Spirit, and he completely lost his anger. He told his wife to get the soldiers some coffee. He remembered the Lord and his promises and his purposes. He was not going to suffer in vain. The storm would rage. And later that week, he would have to preach if they didn't keep him in jail. The congregation knew that Sunday that they had stripped him of all of his books and were harassing him daily so that he would have no time to prepare a sermon Nevertheless, he spoke that next Sunday on the text from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And one man in the congregation was so overwhelmed with the sheer force of Sone's joy in the midst of all his terrible suffering that he could not hear anything after he announced his text. He just broke down in his own heart and he was converted that day and changed as he realized this is real. And Joseph did not suffer in vain. I told you at the ladies' Bible study, some of you, that as they were threatening him with death again, he said at one point, sir, your, your main weapon is killing. And my main weapon is dying. That is to say, I, I live to give testimony of Christ. And if... Now is the time that I'm going to seal that testimony with my blood and make the world know that there is something greater than the whole world itself and that I do not fear you you rulers more than I fear God. If I am to bear testimony that it is true with my blood, that is my greatest weapon. Fire away. (laughs) You see, it was a storm in Romania. Christ was with him in the storm. He was of good cheer, for Christ had overcome the world. He cared so much, which is why it was so hard. But he had Christ's peace. And that was greater than anything the world could give or take away. And Jesus commands us not to let our hearts be troubled. And he's only commanding us what we need to have a healthy spiritual life. Not to say that we won't have any trouble, but he's, what he's saying is, in all that trouble of the world, realize I'm giving you my peace. A peace greater than all those other worldly troubles. Now, I've already mentioned to you several ways in which we may practically enjoy Christ's peace the more. If you know peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you need to exercise that faith. If he speaks these things, these things I have spoken so that in this world... So, sorry, uh, sorry, these uh, the things I have spoken... Oh, it got, got on my mind. He speaks them so that we can have, so that we can have peace. Uh, we need to give ourselves to his word, do we not? You get the peace of God by taking control of your emotions through prayer and obedience to God's will, devoting yourself to the Word of God. Think of Joseph, that story I gave you about how when that small message from the book came into his heart, that was all he needed. But let me just briefly apply this about how we might experience greater peace Uh, A command and promise that you need to memorize is Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Um, I've memorized that, unfortunately, in so many versions, it comes in a big big muddle to my mind. Uh, Nevertheless, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, or uh, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I can never get I can never quite work out what the New King James is, because I learned it first in the NIV and then I switched to the NAS in seminary and now I got the New King James and is it passes or surpasses oh anyway. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a proper kind of worry a worry, as I've said, that comes from loving other people. A, a kind of trouble that even affected Jesus' heart as he has anguish at the, at the grave of his friend. As the shadow of the cross falls upon him for himself. As, his, as Judas, his disciple, is about to betray him. These, in those three cases, in the three chapters previously, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, he had trouble. Paul, who writes that very promise, says earlier in the same letter about the anxiety that Timothy had for them, that he himself has this burden for the church. He's not encouraging any kind of careless, irresponsible attitude toward people or problems. Christians should care deeply about people and their problems and should be anxious till others are well and their problems resolved. Yes. What then does this mean? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, lest your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a kind of worry that will forget the sovereignty of God, his steadfast love for his people, his fatherly care, Christ's finished work, the certainty of our salvation our communion in the Spirit, the glories of the heaven that is to come, and everything else. It just forgets all that. A kind of worry that is simply sin, a mistrust and ingratitude for who God is and what he's done, a a forgetfulness of his immeasurably great gifts, and that is spiritually damaging to us. Jesus speaks these words so that we will have peace. And as old J.C. Ryle, one of my favorites, put it, The true Christian is the only happy man because only he can sit down quietly and think about his soul. He can look behind him and before him. He can look within him and around him and feel all is well. He can think calmly about his past life, however many and great his sins. Take comfort in the thought that they are all forgiven. He can think calmly about things to come and yet not be afraid. Sickness is painful, death is solemn. The judgment day is an awful thing. But having Christ for him, he has nothing to fear. He can think calmly about the holy God, whose eyes are on all his ways, and feel he is my father. I am weak. I am unprofitable. Yet Christ, he regards me as his dear child that is well pleased. Oh, what a blessed privilege it is to be able to think and not be afraid. I can well understand the mournful complaint of the prisoner in solitary confinement. He had warmth and food and clothing and work. But he was not happy. And why? Because he was obliged to think. And when these facts, when these truths, when these precious promises from the upper room come back to us in our dark moments, when these facts again are present to our mind, and facts they are, when the heart is turned to God in thanksgiving for these things, then Christ's peace floods the heart in the midst of tribulation, and he draws you near, and he gives you his assured calm. Yes, the storm rages above in the fathomless depths below, You will not be shaken. Have Christ's peace in troubled times. Trust in the Lord, for he is Lord of all. In conclusion, as an older man, John Newton, author of our hymn Amazing Grace, wrote, I am now in my 72nd year. I know what the world can do and cannot do. It can neither give nor take away the peace of God which passes all understanding. It cannot soothe the wounded conscience nor enable us to meet death with contempt. Only one can do this. Jesus brings real peace. Has God been leading you to peace with him? For if you're not a Christian, I invite you to know his deep, everlasting peace. Peace like a river. And if we look at the churning waves, my fellow Christians, like Peter, I tell you, we will begin to stink. Jesus will not yet calm the storm. And the more that we look at the waves, the more fearful we'll become and the more our legs will give way. But if we keep our eyes on the Lord, then we can find ourselves walking, walking in the stormiest sea. Look unto Jesus, and you will have his peace in this storm. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this day for the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah called him, the little child who leads us, who did not quarrel or cry out. No one heard his voice in the streets, who would not even break a bruised reed or quench smoking wicks, until he sends forth justice to victory. In his name, the nations will trust. O oh, Father, glorify your anointed King. Exalt him who is the ruler of nations and the prince of the kings of the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, to bring more and more peace on earth. That as it is written, of the increase of his government and peace, there may be no end. But especially may we, his people, living in a world of storm. May we find that peace and keep that peace that passes all understanding in Christ Jesus.